Hello, I'm Stuart Devine, and welcome to It's Not All Bad. I tell you, welcome, everybody. Of course, I'm predicting this is going to be an interesting show. We're going to discuss some things that are happening in America that are not so good. These are serious challenges that are going on right now, and they may have positive outcomes at some point in the future. Certainly, we can't see them right now at this moment, but someone's going to help me unpack some of this stuff. And my guest co-host today is Michael Ma. Mike, welcome to the show, and I'm looking forward to you co-hosting with me so we can unpack some of these issues. Thanks, Stuart. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to come back and, and do a repeat. Um, hopefully, it'll, it'll go well today. I, I, I do listen to your podcast uh, every, every week, and I'm really impressed by the, uh, the questions you ask and the guests you have on. You have quite a, quite a range of experience, and, uh, and you bring out a bunch of issues. There's just so much going on these days that it's, it's almost too much to unpack and understand sometimes. So I appreciate the opportunity to continue with our conversations and um, think about it ourselves a little bit about what's going on and and what the future might look like. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And by the way, uh, for those that are listening to this particular episode, Mike Ma served as uh, one of the executive assistants in the White House uh, under uh, the Bush administration, uh, George W. Bush. And of course, he served as executive assistant to uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. He's got a lot of experience. He's been with the government for over 30 years, as well as being a former naval officer which isn't bad, and graduated from the Naval Academy. So he's got some serious bona fides there. So, Mike, what's in the news? What's going on here? Well, let, let me, with that introduction, Stuart, let me first say that I have to, I have to preface all this by saying I'm speaking only in my own, uh, on, on my own behalf, not on behalf of former administrations or the government or my current company, any of that stuff. That said, of course, we all have our own opinions, and uh, I'm happy to talk about them. Um, w- one of the things I thought we could talk about is the um, the issues with healthcare insurance disparities? Now, you know, there was a recent article that came out uh, from the, the National Center for Health Statistics talking about some of those expar- disparities, including that in, in 29, uh, 2019, 14 and a half percent of adults aged 18 to 64 were uninsured. It, among that inf- among that group of uninsured, um, there most of them said it was because the health health uh, insurance was not affordable for them. And if you look at the, the, the uh, numbers even more, it appears that there is some disparities with even within the group of, um, of uninsured about where they are, where they come from, uh, the demographics they represent, with, of course, uh, women um, being a larger percentage of the uninsured. And then if you uh, break it down by, by race, um, Blacks, Hispanics uh, are, are more uh, uninsured than others. And you have to ask um, in this uh, era that we're talking about um, the differences that the Affordable uh, Care Act made um, and then discussions about universal health care, um, what that means for society and what that means for health care in general, because I think it does have an impact. Um, also, you add on top of that the, the needs um, from COVID-19 um, and when people are getting uh, going for assistance. Um, and and what kind of assistance they're getting. Um, these are real issues that I think impact uh, the society a lot. Why do you think why do you think people are afraid of more health care access and maybe even affordability than what we have now? That's a, that's a great question. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the system that we've developed, right? Uh, unlike other places, uh, in general, healthcare has always been associated with your employer. Um, and uh, that's where people got insured. 
how they remained insured until you know the ACA gave a couple of uh, other options. Um, I can I can speak from my own experience, um, and that is you know as I was coming up for the last forty years or so, I've always been insured. Um, I've come from one employer to another, and in fact, there was only about one year when I wasn't insured, and that was um, uh, after I'd gotten out of the Navy and while I was in uh, in law school. And of course, during that year is when we decided to have a baby. Um, and so um, I, when I say I wasn't insured, what, what we were doing actually is we were insured by my wife's health care, which was a foreign health, health plan. Um, she at that time was a, a Dutch citizen. Um, and as such, as a Dutch citizen overseas, she was still covered by the government plan, um, which covered everything. Now, the issue was uh, the way that they did it at that time is that our health care costs weren't covered directly um, between the insurer, which was the government, um, and, the, and the hospital. Instead, I, I was billed for it and then would have to pay. Now, this, again, was uh, uh, 23 years ago when my first son was born. And he had some issues when he was born. And you know, luckily, he's fine now. But he was in the, the NICU, the needle intensive, uh, neonatal intensive care unit for a while. Um, very stressful time. I'd say probably one of the most stressful times that I've ever faced. Um, and then to make it even more stressful, at the end of our stay, when we we're ready to go home, I was called down to the business office of the hospital here in Alexandria and said, well, you know, told that uh, before I had to go home, before we could go home, I owed them $20,000. And of course, as a student that was unemployed, um, thought, wow, there's no way I was going to be able to do that. Now, when I was uh, engaged in getting health care for my family, you know, that didn't come up, you know, I just did, you know, I said, you know, we have to take the, uh, we need the medical care we need. And, and, uh, and, and so we, we took it, but then be, to be placed in this spot of, well, you need to also pay this money before you can leave with something. That's a very good point. Uh, and I'm glad about uh, your son, obviously overcoming the difficulty in the neonatal care unit. And I can imagine getting uh, stuck with a $22,000 bill and you're like, hold it here. We're talking about trying to save someone's life, but we've got a premium on that, which is unfortunate. I have a, a story that's only a few years ago. I'd say maybe three years ago, came home from a flight. I was tired and um, came up from the airport and I decided, well, I'm just going to uh, put some stuff on the stove and I'm going to go upstairs and, you know, just slip into some comfortable clothes and just eat something because I was really hungry. We know how airline food cannot be that tasty and put some oil on, et cetera. The alarm went off while I was upstairs and I said, oh my goodness, I still have stuff on the stove. Mainly the oil went downstairs, grabbed that skillet and I wasn't thinking about the oil, believe it or not at the time, I was really tired, grabbed it, and that hot oil impacted my legs, thighs, um, calves, um, toes, you know, because I was in short pants at the time. And as you can imagine, it was extremely painful. I had to go to the hospital. You know, there's really no choice on that because I just need to get some care really quick. Got in there, went to the emergency room. I was there in, in, in total, in total, I was only there for about two hours. They gave me some kind of various uh, salves to put on there. They put a little bit on. They gave me some bandages, some magnesium things that had some kind of emulsive on there. And they said, you know, this is going to be painful for a few days. And of course, it's going to blister up and it's going to peel and, and all these kinds of things that go along with it. And got the bill. It was $4,000. I was there just slightly under two hours. The issue is, of course, I have government insurance. I still had a hefty portion to pay. But I, immediately when I got that and I was over my shock, I said, 
What about people that are under, terribly underinsured? Do they go, I'm burned. I don't want to have a four or $5,000 bill that I can't pay for. I'm just going to do some home remedies and let it be. This is also an issue I think that's affecting many Americans. This is something that we're going to have to definitely start moving forward to try to crack this nut. It's getting better, of course, with the Affordable Care Act, even though there were some rollout issues. It's true. It's getting a little bit better, but we're still not there. In many ways, uh, COVID-19 has probably exposed some of that. Yeah, I hear you. You know, there's... um. It's even more than just that emergent care, though, right? It's the it's the the other care that people are foregoing. You know, they're 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 not going to colonoscopies. They're they're not getting uh, preventative care done. They're not going to the doctor regularly. And so then, when something does happen, it's catastrophic, right? And they're not ready for it, and the system's not ready for it. So you know, I also had this experience um, in in Canadian healthcare. Because at the time we were, um, when my third son was born, in fact, we were in Canada. So I, I could compare directly the two systems. Uh, one where I was in the United States for my first son and we had this huge bill and it wasn't insured. And then for the third son, when uh, we were in Canada and under the Canadian health system. Um, and as opposed to the, the 20 or $22,000 bill for my first son, for the third, it was $8. Excellent. That $8 paid the cost of the, uh, a private hotel room and that was it. And everything else, because of the of the uh, the status we were in, it was paid for as a regular um, health uh, regular Canadian at that time. It's odd, but I have to say, as far as the healthcare goes, I was much more pleased with the care that we received in Virginia than I was in Canada, to be honest. So there are issues, right? It, it, there's it's not a panacea. Um, although it was little or no cost to to us. Uh, for the birth of, the, of my of my third son, you know, there were some issues with getting to see a specialist. There were issues with even during the birth itself, um, having doctors available and them ch uh, changing shifts in the middle of the of the uh, of the delivery and and lots of other issues leading up to it that led me to believe that maybe we weren't getting as good a care in that system as we as we were in the U.S. system. You know, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, indeed, you bring up a very good point. Sometimes people saying that we want better quality as opposed to access. Uh, and some people are saying it may be lower quality in a perspective. And that's sometimes that can be a subjective quality when we say that. However, we want to have access. It is not an easy nut to crack. I'm on the side of having more access for people, the children and what we call the working poor. And by the way, I don't know who coined that term. I, I, might, I might want to look that up. The working poor, literally you're working, maybe even two jobs, but on an economic, social economic scale, you are considered in a poverty area, considered um, you're eligible for SNAP or what used to be called food stamp program and all these kinds of things, yet you're the working poor and still may have inadequate healthcare insurance to get adequate, much less quality care. So you're right. It's not an easy thing. As a matter of fact, speaking of not easy, you and I had talked about COVID, which is always in the news, COVID-19. We know this is something that was discovered uh, back last year. We now have topped over 700,000 deaths. And that's not to mention the number of um, people that have been hospitalized and released at some point or are suffering debilitating after effects of this COVID-19 infection. It's clear it's going to be with us for quite some time. But, you know, there's some strange things going on about this, and including 
different country specific strategies, which confuses travelers or maybe forget about travelers. Some people are saying, well, the US, you're doing this. Other countries are doing that. As you know, some of the countries in Europe, they open or stayed open, if you will, longer in terms of the COVID mitigation efforts, where the United States, we started at some point much later, much, much, much later. But even then we went all in on lockdowns, mask mandates, et cetera, because a lot of people are saying, why can't we do like so-and-so? Why can't we just let people go to the beaches? Why can't we just people wear a mask or not wear a mask? It doesn't matter. Well, the data is starting to show those things really do matter. And sometimes it might be better for many of us to sort of pay attention to what's going on in the United States. The travel restrictions is another issue that's coming up. For example, in Japan right now, if you are not a Japanese citizen and you're not, uh, say, a green card holder, and I'm putting that in quotations because they don't call them green card, but someone who's authorized to live there. But if you're not a Japanese citizen, one, you can't travel there in the first place unless you have specific business to be there. Number two, even if you can travel there, there is a mandatory 10-day quarantine. It was 14 days. Now it's down to 10 days quarantine. And you have all of these issues that are going on and restrictions. And yet in the United States, we are now, as it was just announced, I think between Canada and Europe, at least certain countries in Europe, we are going to open up those borders provided people have been vaccinated. And then we go into the differing uh, mask mandates. Uh, some school boards in some cities and some states are saying, guess what? We're so concerned about the COVID outbreaks. We want to make sure our students are masked. And others are saying, we're not doing that. That's up to the parents. Then we have the state governments. Some governors are saying, no, I'm actually going to penalize school districts and school boards if they absolutely have a mask mandate. So this causes confusion within our population about what is real. What is not real? How much is politics? How much isn't politics? But yet people are dying every day and people are being infected every day. And now we're seeing before this used to be the panacea. Well, the kids don't have a problem. Our youngsters don't have a problem. Unfortunately, we're seeing, oh, we are wrong. They're having a big problem with COVID infections and hospitalizations. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, these are all, all, all real issues. They're in the news right now. And I don't think we're going to break any new ground, right? Um, but it seems to me that so much of the science and so much of the issue has turned political, right? Um, and it's hard to compare the United States to to other smaller European or other countries, uh, Asian countries, just because the U.S. is so big and there's so, such a divergence of of opinion and the divergence of um, the the situation on the ground in different places, right? It's one thing for Belgium to say, here's our, here's our policy and we're going to treat everybody the same way, you know, as opposed to the United States where, you know, it's one thing in Northern Virginia and it's another thing in Western Virginia, right? Um, and it's hard to say this is, this is the policy that's going to apply every place. The issue is, I think the bigger one is the extent that we're moving away from fact, like you said, and moving away from the science. Now, the problem with it is, is that the science and the facts aren't totally clear. Unlike some things, you know, some things did or didn't happen. When you're talking about epidemiology, you're talking about big groups of people and, and, and very, uh, very slow to emerge trends. Um, and I think it's hard to say, well, this is the way out because you could always point to a counterexample and say, well, the United States, it didn't work here or it did work here. Um, and then to get it caught up with uh, this idea that, well, it's my right to decide, right? It's my right to decide if I get vaccinated or not. When for the last, you know, 50 years, um, 
uh, for my children, we've kind of bought into the fact that before they go to school, they need to have certain vaccinations. Um, and now to say, well, but this vaccination is different. I need to be able to decide that. And this idea we're having, well, you know, is it the government's position uh, to do that or not? It gets down to more of a fundamental question about what is the role of government in, in doing this and handling these kinds of crises. Um, you know, you can make the argument, this is exactly what central government, what government should do, is that they should help us to get through this and make policies that, that make things better. And that when they do, that they need the population to be on board with that. I don't know. What, what's your experience talking to others that have been overseas and dealing with it in different ways? Well, let, let me tell you, it's really interesting. Um, I had a co-host that was on, I think it was the one before the last episode. And this is dealing with Dylan Manza, who's in Thailand in Bangkok. And they're talking about the different mitigation efforts with COVID and one of the mitigation. And it took them a while to do it. But either way, they shut down pretty much everything in terms of restaurants. You can't sit in restaurants at that time. You can actually order. They can deliver. But the fact that you're going to go there for breakfast, lunch and dinner and physically sit in the restaurant. Well, they didn't. They shut that down. Bangkok is known for its nightlife. We know different clubs and different activities. Those pretty much shut down. So they took it quite seriously. That, But I like what you said about the United States. Now, we are a, a republic, of course, but we have state governments, city governments, county governments, and we also have the political discourse that's been involved in that. It's sort of unfortunate that we've come at a place that I would like to think, if we're not careful, we're not thinking in terms of we are our neighbor's keeper. I was going to say our brother's keeper, but you know what I mean? Gender aside, sometimes we are now we're sort of drifting away from it is my responsibility. At least I see it, and I believe you may too. I'm not speaking on your behalf, that it is my responsibility to look after my health, of course. But I'm also concerned about the health of my fellow neighbors that live in my community that I'm on the plane with, and we can go on and on. And we are sort of gradually, slowly but surely stepping away from the it's my brother's keeper kind of philosophy. I'm not saying we were always that way, Mike. No, 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 no. But I'm saying there's something, there's a certain kind of panache about not bringing my brother's keeper as an honorable stance. Now, I'm not going to get judgmental about that, but at some point, we're going to have to be very careful. Yeah, I, I hear you. You know, and, and the question, I mean, to, to move on, you know, the question is, what happens post-COVID, right? I mean, these are all issues that are coming up as a result of COVID. Um, and, you know, some of these issues have, have always existed. You know, the, the balance between local governance and local rules and, and federal rules and, 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 and state rules versus what the federal government wants us to do. And we've, we've run up against all these issues um, with COVID, right? And that, those issues aren't, aren't resolved. They're just more stark, I think, with COVID, right? Is it up to my local school board to decide um, what policies my, my son is going to have to um, uh, uh, follow while he's in school? Or should it be up to the federal government or the CDC? Who makes the decision? And, and is it, uh, who, who decides? Um, you know, and there's a lot of things that, so that was something that has been going on for a while, right? I mean, that's a, a tension in our governance and our society. It's always been there, but there are other things like that too, that we're seeing COVID, right? You know, think about the, um, uh, uh, the, the change in brick and mortar stores, right? And, you know, we have a Best Buy down the street that just closed, you know? Um, so when I want to get that cable for my computer, um, I have to go online, but I, maybe I would have gone online anyway to do that. Right. What does COVID mean? You know, during COVID, I, the store was closed anyway and I couldn't go. Um, 
but what does that mean for us going forward, right? Has COVID uh, uh, changed things in a way that will stay the same, right? Have we found, uh, how, how can we as a society determine uh, what, what was useful, what worked well versus what was just a response to the situation we found in and we need to go back to normal? You know, we see it in the workplace too, right? You know, for the last year, year and a half, we've been, we've been doing a lot of work just by telework. Um, and now we hear there's this move to go back to where we were. Is that really the best way to do it? Or is that just saying, look, that's how it worked before. And we, we, uh, we had some time where we had to, we had to do the necessary uh, to make things continue to work, but now we need to go back because that, that's what worked uh, the best for us in the last time. And I don't know, you know, will that change things? Are we going to see this this great resignation where people decide, you know, I, I enjoyed uh, my time teleworking and uh, I don't want to do it anymore. Um, I, mean, I don't want to go back to work and I want to resign. Or will we see people that say, look, you know, I'm ready to go back. I need, uh, I was more productive when I was in the office. Yeah. Well, I agree with you that we've come to the point where it's a reckoning, especially in the workforce and, and of course with school issues, et cetera, but in the workforce, COVID-19 has taught us, guess what? We can actually function. I'm talking about in a work environment now. We can actually function with less people in that brick and mortar building. Now, granted, you have to have the tools to do that, et cetera, but there were companies that couldn't do it and they had to lay off their people. And that's really unfortunate. That's the negative part about this. But from my perspective, as someone that is engaged with colleagues that do a lot of work overseas, as well as domestically right here, uh, we've made it work. And I'm so fortunate uh, to see that happen in our organization where we have the technical tools to do it, but we also have the leadership that says we are going to support this. Whereas maybe two or three years ago, what, you want to telework? I want you in this building, whether it's productive or not, that's a whole different issue, but I want you in this building because I'm in the building and I want to see you or I want to be able to walk down the hall where COVID-19 comes up. We have to start quarantining or we have to start teleworking and we're finding out, yeah, I would rather have that face to face, but you know something, we can actually make this work. So in our organization, we are making and have been making it work for over a year and a half. So even as we attempt to try to come back to some semblance of whatever quote normal unquote is, we are always going to be looking at remote work opportunities and teleworking opportunities because it works. We find that people have really a wonderful karma about it. And by the way, Mike, that sort of segues into something else too that's going on. How about the epidemic of loneliness? I mean, this is really important too, including its results. The Harvard School of Education's Making Caring, uh, Caring Common Project suggests that 36% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults, 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. Not surprisingly, surprisingly, loneliness appears to have increased substantially since the outbreak of the global pandemic. Why do you think that is, Mike? Well, I do think that people are more separate now, you know, in the ways that we, um, uh, we would uh, uh, meet people and, and, and have those social interactions have changed over time. Now, you know, there's always this issue of, you know, being a, a man in my mid to late 50s, you know, there's this time in life, I think, that applies to a lot of us where things change, right? Um, as as a, when you're in school, when you're in college or grad school, or when you're first starting out in a career, um, your life and social life is much different. 
Um, and then, you know, life changes and you, and you, uh, you, you, maybe you get married, maybe you start to have kids and your focus changes, your focus changes from, from yourself and, and going out and meeting people and hanging out in, in a bar or at a club or something else to, you know, I work, I'm at home, that's it. And the friends you make are different. I have to say personally, you know, my closest friends are those friends that I had in high school and they remain so. Um, aside from you, of course, you know, you, you meet one or two, but uh, over, overall, that's the exception, I think, for most of us, right? That those, we have work colleagues and we have people that, um, that we get to know over time, but really our, our closest connection are ones that we have, we share a bond with. And, and normally that's a shared history. Um, I think that COVID raises the question, well, has that changed it, right? And, and, and also this, the idea of being online more and making those connections more also changes it. Um, you know, I look at my, my sons who, who their connections um, uh, have always been with people that they are connecting with online now, right? And that they've, they've made uh, a common uh, connection because of their interaction. It may be over a game or it may be over a Reddit or I'm not sure what the, even the terminology is anymore. Um, but it's not necessarily that face-to-face -face connection that they're, um, that they're making now, um, except when they're in school. And I wonder for them if it'll be different for me that, than it is for me that, you know, again, you know, I don't make a lot of friends these days because I don't interact with many people except for in a professional setting. You know, there may be some people I meet at the dog park, but I'm hesitant, right? <laughs> you know, because it's COVID. Do I, you know, how much, how well do I, how much do I share with these people? Um, and, and that's hard. I don't know. Do you find yourself, I mean, obviously, Stuart, you are a very loquacious and gregarious person. Um, you, you can make friends uh, anywhere, but do you find it harder now that we're, you know, um, post-COVID? Uh, or, or do you find it the same? I tell you, I think it's more difficult to make good acquaintances and definitely not going to make too many new friends, but certainly more difficult to even make good acquaintances because people are keeping their distance and that's understandably so. I think another impact, and I'm glad you brought this up, another impact of this whole loneliness thing, that's, that's certainly much of it associated with COVID, but even before then we we're having this because of income inequality, but you know, there's some impact upon this as well. Uh, the loneliness, there are sleeplessness issues, anxiety, of course, substance abuse. We had that before COVID, of course, and we still have it. What's really sad is the domestic abuse is off the hook. I was looking at some st statistics and I really should have had them available. And it hurts your heart to see what's going on uh, pre-COVID and what's been reported during COVID. Now that people are in their homes and many people are in smaller homes, maybe both the the um, the spouse that was the bread earner, if you will, and maybe the second spouse that was maybe staying home with the child, et cetera. Now they're both home. The child is home. The child may not have access to online learning because they may not even have a laptop or maybe it doesn't work or maybe they can't afford internet. And before you know it, there, there, there's abuse going on and alcoholism goes up and substance abuse. And it's just really sort of a sad state of affairs. And when you have that all mixed into the fray, you can imagine people having difficulty making friends outside of that other than going to a bar or hooking up with people that are going to be just doing the same thing they're doing, abusing their bodies to a certain degree. Now, there are people all about this loneliness complex that America's experiencing, has been experiencing, but COVID has absolutely driven it home. Some possible solutions, 
in part while reimagining and reweaving our social relationship in healthcare, schools, and many other institutions. It is true that when children are in school, they get a relief valve to a certain degree from being at home and they interact with others. By the way, sometimes the stay-at-home parent needs that relief valve as well. So to have children in school. So that's something that we need to go ahead and reimagine. Also, how about this? Making sure that more people have uh, access to healthcare, especially mental healthcare, because a lot of the issues that are going on, we know it's emotional issues. And mom and dad, you and me as buddies and friends, we can't resolve that. Sometimes it takes professional care. And by the way, working to restore our commitments to each other and you know, common good to renew a founding promise uh, of this country, there's we're losing sort of that. And COVID is sort of demonstrated to um, not to uh, a good point, how it's fractured us. Politically, yes, of course, we can see the discourse is totally messed up. There's no doubt there are some uh, factions that are using COVID to divide and not unite. And there are other people that are saying, well, I'm going to divide from you because you don't practice the science of what's really going on. So that sense of community, it's being lost writ large. I'm not talking about on an individual basis, maybe on some affinity group basis, but writ large. And that contributes to my opinion, at least my opinion, this epidemic of loneliness. I I, I just don't know, Mike. I, I don't know. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's something that we all deal with in our own way, with our own families and our own uh, own situation. I think it I think it highlights something else, though, and that is this this disparity within our culture. Right. And we often talk about it as income disparity. And you hear more and more about about that going on. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I, I really want to have some time off and uh, you know, I want to get together with friends. I want to have this time. And not everybody has that opportunity, right? If you, if you look at the statistics um, about where our income, how our income is distributed, it's amazing how disparate it's become over the last, even over the last 10 to 20 years. It's one thing to think, well, you know, Jeff Bezos is always working so hard. He has never, doesn't have any time to have friends um, as opposed to the person that, well, he's just working so hard and doesn't have the time to have friends. Um, and if you, if you look at the way that it's changed over time, really affects all these issues, right? Your ability to, uh, uh, to have leisure time, your ability to relax, your ability for healthcare, your ability for all these things um, comes down to uh, how our, our income and the opportunity, in fact, has been distributed amongst the society, right? To, to look at the house prices around where I live, to think that, you know, as a, as a millennial or as somebody starting out, there is no way I could get in that market, right? And so what are my options? You know, my options are to keep working. My options are, I don't know. I mean, it's a real issue. And to see, you know, and, and to hear about on the flip side, you know, uh, reports about, you know, families that couldn't afford a, a $400 unexpected um, cost, right? How is that family going to be able to afford a, a million dollar house and live where, you know, in, in Northern Virginia? You know, what what kind of um, uh, where does that leave them? Right. And that's you know, that leads that that connects to all these other issues we've been talking about. Right. That it's not loneliness and access to health care and and the effects of covid aren't the same for everybody. Um, and as a result, the way we're looking at the solutions aren't the same for any everybody either. Um, and it'd be one thing for me to say, well, here's how I think we should do it. But it's it's a different perspective, um, and it's hard to say 
this is going to work for everyone when there's a bigger underlying issue. And of course, you know, I'm not a socialist. I'm not a communist. And I think there should be millionaires and billionaires. But um, uh, and I think everybody should pay their share. But when we think about solutions to these issues, a lot of them, I think, come down to this underlying disparity. Um, and it, and it's 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 broken. You know, it, there's no denying the 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 numbers. You know, it's broken by race. It's broken by um, uh, income disparities in your family. It, it's 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 broken down by you know where you started and where you'll end up. I don't know. What do you see from from where you? Are? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. It's really uh, disappointing in some ways to find out that we're in this conundrum. And um, if anybody thinks that, well, I wish we were back in the '50s. Well. That's okay if you're a certain income and absolutely if, if you're a certain race. So you can imagine a lot of people are not going to say, I wish we were back in the 50s. But even when it comes to education, that contributes to some of this inequality when we're telling our children, well, if you want to be a success, you really need to go to that school. And by the way, it could be a very good school, but it's an expensive private school. Maybe it's um, you know $50,000 a year, and but no problem, okay? Either I as a parent are gonna go into the rabbit hole in super debt, okay, to make sure you can go there for four years at 50 grand a year, or you, the child, you're going to get into debt. There's just no guarantee that when you graduate from XYZ school, even though it's thirty or fifty thousand dollars a year, you're going to start off making a sixty thousand dollar a year job. There's probably more of a percentage that you're going to be going into something that you that's not even in your degree area where you want to be, and then all of a sudden, income inequality still continues to grow because that young person that just graduated from that school is already behind debt wise. Because at some point, how is that young person, I like what you said, how is that young person going to be able to go ahead and buy a, even a starter home and prices are off the hook, inflation's on the rise, gas prices in California at $4.14. Here in uh, Florida, at some counties, they're already at $3.14 or $0.15. And I remember when it was at $2.80 just three weeks ago. So all of these things are playing into income inequality. And then we are under this impression that, well, community college, why would you go to a community college? That's not worth it. We're like, no, that's worth it because the trades will pay well, as you very well know. We've all read the news. There is an absolute dearth of wonderful opportunities out there. I passed how many signs over the past 30 days that said we are paying $15 an hour hiring now. Yet, when I walked in there and I was speaking to the shift leader, I said, wow, isn't this interesting? And he says, I'm telling you now, we don't have people that are just begging and breaking down that door to get $15 an hour. Yet, that company that I'm talking about, it definitely wasn't paying $15 an hour two years ago. We all know that. It was like the seven, eight, maybe 10, and you thought you're really doing well. So we are absolutely in a place that, my God, what has happened? Up is down and down is up. We are certainly not going to get over this one anytime soon, man. And what's the stuff with old age, Mike? Well, that's a great question. You know, I mean, uh, um, what happens when you get old? Um, what happens when you are, um, well, you know, as you age, right, as far as getting in, let's say getting in the housing market, I think they've seen that, you know, the, the millennia, the, the baby boomers are the ones with that equity that's been built up in their houses, right? That's been built up over time. Um, and they're the ones that are beating out the, the younger folks to get these, you know, all cash down payments on their on their homes. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's a problem for people trying to get in um, to, to start out. 
But, you know, as you know, culturally, we're different, too. You know, you see it. Uh, you know, I saw it in Asia where, um, you know, as you get older, you assume that, you know, you're, you're going to live at home with your with your with your kids. Right. They're going to take care of you as you get old versus, um, you know, here in the United States, that's much less uh, likely to happen, partially because of the, the distance that you might live away from your parents um, for the type of care that they need to have and just the way that what's expected, what, what your parents expect. Um, but it's really it's really a tough situation as, as people get older. And then, you know, you look at the impact of COVID, how that's happened, you know, as having a, a parent that was in a um, in an assisted care home that we couldn't see for a year uh, because they, you know, we, because of COVID um, and what that means um, and, and how that impacts uh, what she was thinking about, what her life would look like. Right. And how much money do you have to have saved to be to be uh, healthy and, and secure through your retirement. You know, do you need a million dollars? Do you need more than a million dollars? Um, do you need less? You know, what, what can you do? Um, is it something you put just on your, on your kids to take care of? Um, and it's different depending on where you start, right? What do I expect? What do my kids expect? Um, you know, what, what, what's gonna happen to me when I get old, right? Is it on me? Is it on the government? You know, am I gonna live on the street? Am I gonna live under the bridge? I don't know. Uh, it, it's hard to know what, um, what you're, where you're gonna be when you get old and, and what you need to prepare for that. I don't know. Uh, what are your plans? Well, I tell you, when I get old, listen to everybody, they're on, oh, you're already old. No, when I get old, <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen, Mike. I know one thing though, I'm gonna continue doing what I'm doing right here. And all of a sudden, somebody said, well, what are you doing? Doing my podcast, having you on, being the co-host, so we can sort of lightly, very lightly unpack some of these issues. But you're right. Like many people, we're not getting younger. And once you're past that stage and you're reaching into the baby boomer years, well, you, you know that life is truly finite. It's not infinite. So I don't plan on leaving my children a burden unless all of a sudden one day, you're right, I have a stroke and can't think if we can go on and on or I have dementia. Um, I'm hoping that won't be the case. I don't want to get hit by a car, but if it happens, I don't want to be a problem to my kids. So that's not my goal. And you're right, it is a cultural issue. Most, I, may, I don't know if they can quantify it, but I think many Americans that are native born Americans are sort of of the thing that, well, my children aren't going to be the ones that are supposed to take care of me. Yeah, I, I tell you, Mike, it's weird. And that also brings up another uh, situation about social media. As you know, there's been this um, in the news with Facebook and uh, the whistleblower that talks about they were using algorithms mainly to get people stoked up. And um, people have read enough about it, so we don't have to get into details on how they were getting stoked up. And a lot of this is, is technical. We know that. But it, the more uh, stoked up people are, the more emotional they are, the more they're going to tune in and the more they're going to get stoked up, the more they're going to tune in, the more they're going to tell their friends, et cetera, the more advertising dollars comes in. And of course, that they were accusing uh, Facebook of this. Now, you and I don't know what's true and what's not true, but this is just what's reported in the media. One thing we can say that there is positives on social media, especially during the era of, era of COVID when you're at home. It's nice to be able to connect with people, Facebook, to let people know what's going on, et cetera. Maybe Instagram, if you have a nice shot of something that you think people would find interesting. But Mike, 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 there is the other side of social media. And frankly, it's distressing. It's a social media where literally, and especially when it comes down to our young boys and yes, our young girls who think they're constantly inadequate. 
because of the constant exposure in social media of these. I mean, I got one. I want to make sure I have a lot of views and not only a lot of views. I want to have a lot of likes. But the interesting part about it is that the body dysmorphia, in other words, thinking that physically you are constantly inadequate because all of these postings about look what people are doing, but most importantly, look how they look. Photoshop, all smooth, this, the other thing. We have exposure, which is happening on you. And I had a great conversation about what's happening with some of our people in um, in the entertainment industry. There's a lot of you know people with revealing clothing and all kinds of things like that. And our youngsters are taking this all in in a social media way, and they're finding themselves inadequate. That is the negative. And it's really sort of sad because I think that's part of the issue with the loneliness pandemic. What, what do you think, dude? Yeah, I think it's all related, of course. I, I, again, though, I think it's nothing, nothing new, actually. You know, as long as, as we remember that social media and anything you plug into is a business, right? And they want more views. They want to make income. None of them are doing it in general. None of them are doing it out of uh, just benevolence. Um, but if you look back, I don't think that's ever really changed, right? In the 50s, you know, they wanted you to think that it looked cool to smoke. <laughs> That's right. right. So That's right. you see a lot of people smoking um, in the, um, uh, uh, you know, in the 60s, you know, it was the music or, or whatever. So I don't think these things are, are, are all that different. And I don't want to get overheated about what uh, the impacts of social media are, because I think it, it sped up things. Right. And, and these kinds of feelings of inadequacy or feelings of not fitting in or bullying. I think that's all that's all true. And I think that's something that we as parents or we as consumers of social media need to be aware of. But to think that, wow, this is something that's but it brings us back then to the question of what is government's role in this? How should it be regulated? Right. Is every should, is, does everything need to be regulated by the government? Uh, what you know, it, it's been a long time since we've had any any legislation that um, uh, affects some of these issues we're talking about. And does it need to? You know, do we need to think about it again? You enjoy podcasting. You know, is that are you worried that that you are are going to be censored sometime about you know what what you say or how you say it? And is that a problem for well, you? Well, at least not now. I, I think I'm uh, somewhat benevolent, as you said, uh, as, as opposed to malevolent. So uh, I'm I'm obviously careful on some of the things and the topics that we discuss. Although in the future that could change as as uh, situations uh, unfortunately degrade. Um, as far as this whole social media thing, I, it's a very good point because even back in the 50s, when we're talking about, it, definitely there was this culture to get everybody to smoke. No matter what program, it seemed like, except the children weren't, but the women were smoking, the guys were smoking. Uh, they were constantly pushing the filtered cigarettes, unfiltered cigarettes, et cetera. But that was television. Social media today, we all know it's real time. It's right there. It's in your face and it's constant so long as you're plugging into it. And that's what, of course, it's like a drug. Social media, it can be a drug as opposed to trying to learn or have meaningful discourse. It's like, oh my God, I'm inadequate. So you're right about that. How does that all work with the government? You're right. We don't want them telling us what we can and can't watch. We know that. Uh, on the other hand, we don't know if it's necessarily a good idea for any any outlet to just make it a point with the algorithm. The algorithm does say, guess what? If we find out if people are negatively stoked, not positive, but negatively stoked up, that's going to get more clicks, more views, and et cetera. And that means more advertising dollars. Well, I just don't know. That's a tough nut to crack. Uh, again, I'm with you there. 
wouldn't want the government actually coming down too heavy handed on that because there is a kind of freedom that we don't want to forget about. Hey, Mike, we're going to get ready to close this out. But before we do, hey, what about some political discourse? I mean, what's going on with? Well, you know, I think I think you, you what you just said was a great segue to that, Stuart, because, you know, I think we're talking about clicks and I think we're talking about exciting people. And, you know, it comes back to that issue that we, we talked about a while ago, and that is, you know, not agreeing on the same set of facts. Right. If you can't agree on the same set of facts and you can't have a rational discussion about where where we go from here. But I also think that's because people are trying to uh, stoke their base. Right. They're, they're trying to um, confirm their own opinions. And so we're talking past each other in a lot of these things. Um, we're talking past each other on uh, what we think is best for moving forward, because we're just trying to uh, make our points. Right. We're trying to get more support. We're trying to get more dollars. We're trying to get votes in some cases. Um, and so you degrade or you denigrate other ideas um, as a result. And I think that's the thing that's missing from the discourse is saying, you know, everybody's saying, OK, I hear what you're saying. Here's what I'm saying. And how do we come to a, a, um, a, a common solution to what what we need to address? Um, and until you can have those kinds of conversations. Right. We're not even in the same room. And I think if you look at social media and you look at uh, uh, just our discourse on any issue, it often comes down to that. When you say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to be against it. Right. I don't care what your policy is just because it's your policy or your idea. I'm not going to be for it. So it's hard to say uh, where we go from here and, and how we change that. You know, um, in the past, it's, it's taken a catastrophe to change it. Right. It's taken a war or it's taken a um, uh, some other issue, but it doesn't seem like the pandemic did it for it us. Didn't. Right. It's not like everybody got together and said, all right, so we have this thing. We're going to face it together. We're going to come to a solution. And it hasn't. If anything, I think um, it has pushed us farther apart politically. So I don't know what, what, what you I tell you, it's really interesting. Um, because political discourse is broken um, between different organizations and political groups. The a prime example of that is, of course, what's happened with the pandemic. However, even the debt ceiling. Now, we all know the debt ceiling has to do with paying our bills. The average person is not aware about that. They, Of course, they may understand about the continuing resolution, which means it's going to be temporary. Congress um, votes for a resolution to fund the government until, in this particular case, until December 3rd. That's a continuing resolution. And they seem to forget about the debt ceiling. That's something where we're saying we're going to make sure that debt ceiling gets raised so we can pay the bills that we've already incurred. But the idea that we were almost at the precipice again, this goes to show you this is a prime example of just how the political discourse can be extremely destructive. Well, frankly, it always it already is because of the pandemic. However, the debt ceiling is another example that I hope people realize that almost brought us to the precipice. If we're not careful, we'll be there around on or about December 3rd again if there's no resolution on this issue. So yeah. We're in trouble. And speaking of in trouble, I guess we're almost out of time here. Mike, I want to thank you very much for being my guest co-host today. Dude, it's always good listening to your thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Stuart. It's always good to talk to you, boy. Time flies when you're just uh, pontificating. But boy, there's a lot to talk about these days. I'm glad I had the chance to say my bit. Okay, then. In the meantime, I want you to have a good uh, rest of the day and a weekend. And until the next time we have this opportunity, you take care. You too, Stuart. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
As always, you can listen and subscribe to It's Not All Bad wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you.